Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 702, The Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Are you well? Morning, Eusebius. I'm really good. How are you? I am very good. If slightly disturbed by a science story, you're about to do something anti-green and tell me that there's an upside to single-use plastic bags. Well, ish. Um, let me let me explain before, ish, I like that. before ish, people get, get very upset. <laughs> this is a very interesting story and it has a lovely positive ending, which is that there was a species called the Greater Bermuda Land Snail, which was thought to have been lost to the planet 40 years ago, thought to have gone extinct. And then in 2014, a guy in Hamilton, the capital of the island of Bermuda, walked in with a, a snail shell and said, I think this is one of these extinct snails. Now, the, this one had, had, was dead, but it was a recent shell. And then the next day, he came back with a live specimen. So scientists got very excited and thought, well, actually, this extinct snail species is not extinct at all. Where did you get that? And it turned out that there was this alleyway behind a restaurant in Hamilton where there was loads of old takeaway boxes and bits of old plastic had been dumped under the aircon unit. Water dripping out of the aircon unit was going into these plastic bags and pooling there, and it was the ideal home for this very endangered species of snail, which was found to be thriving in this environment. So they took samples of these snails to Chester Zoo in the United Kingdom, and their researchers at Chester Zoo and the Zoological Society of London introduced a captive breeding programme They've now got 13,000 of these snails, which they've taken back to Bermuda, and they have a thriving population of snails back in Bermuda now. But it just goes to show, although we diss plastic, and plastic is, is, a, is bad, it is an awful cause of pollution. In this instance, it did provide a home from home for an endangered species and brought them back from the brink, which is it's an exceptional story, but don't be profligate with your plastic, but sometimes some clouds do have a silver lining. Oh, wow, love it. Beautiful story. Andre, good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Morning, you see this on Chris. Um, my question would be around gravity and the effect on the body. I've lived in a, a ground unit all my life and recently moved into a, a unit on the fifth floor of a building. And the first couple of weeks, I've really struggled to sleep. And could this be because I've moved up from the earth and the gravity has got a bigger effect on my body now? I'll listen on the radio. Hi, Andre. The answer is almost certainly not due to gravity. And the reason I'm saying this is that the effect of gravity is, is that it acts through the centre of an object's mass. Now, the centre of mass here is the centre of the Earth. The radius of the Earth is about 6,000 kilometres. That's how far you'd have to drill down from the surface to get to the Earth's centre. So the distance between the ground and your new apartment relative to the distance between the Earth's surface and the core of the Earth is inconsequential. So it's going to be almost no difference whatsoever in the gravity you experience between your original apartment and your new one. So that's not going to be the reason. We do know, though, that people, when they move environment, when they move home, and, and including when we go to a hotel, people always characteristically say they sleep poorly at first. And this is probably a primitive mechanism in your brain 
which increases your level of vigilance and arousal when you're in a new environment. Because way back in our evolutionary history, when we moved to an unsafe environment, there was a greater threat posed by danger from nature. Things could come and creep up on you and eat you, bite you and so on. So therefore, we tend to have a poorer sleep profile on our initial nights in a new location. And this was proven recently. Scientists actually did experiments where they registered the brainwaves of people on their first and then subsequent nights in a new location and found that actually the brain does not settle into the normal sleep pattern that you see in someone who is restfully sleeping in an environment they're accustomed to until they've been there for a couple of days. And in fact, you keep one of your brain's hemispheres at a higher level of activity and you're more rousable uh, during the night because of this higher level of activity for the first night or so in your new location. So I suspect that's got more to do with it and perhaps other environmental stimuli that you're not yet used to, light, sound and so on. It's nothing to do with gravity, I wouldn't have thought, though. Asad, good morning. Morning, how are you? Good, thank you. Good, good, good. My question is, I had a, uh, I have blood pressure and anxiety over the period of time. I just need to know why heart gets excited and your mood changes. Okay, did you get that, Chris? Yes. Now, the reason for this is there's an arm of your nervous system, which is known as the autonomic nervous system. And the clue is in the name. Autonomic is like automatic. This part of your nervous system, its job is to make sure that everything that you don't need to worry about still gets done. For example, control of your breathing, control of your blood pressure, control of how fast your heart beats. That system looks at the world around you and decides for you how to set up your body so that you are optimally rigged to cope with the challenges of the day. Now, when we face a challenge or when we're nervous about something, this engages a part of the autonomic nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system, and this is involved in what we call fight or flight. When this gets activated, it sends signals via adrenaline to all your blood vessels to make them open up in certain vascular areas to get more blood into your muscles, close up in your intestines to bite to, to divert blood away from things you don't need. It causes your lungs to open your airways so you can breathe faster and it also causes your heart to beat faster and harder. And the converse of this, when you have the sort of a relaxing environment to sit in, you get the parasympathetic nervous system kicking in, and this reverses all those effects, and it causes your heart to slow down, it causes your blood pressure to drop, and so on. So when you're anxious, you tend to get a higher heart rate because there's more adrenaline being produced, both from the sympathetic nervous system and also from your adrenal glands, and that's what produces these changes of blood pressure, heart rate, breathing, and so on. 702 The Naked Scientist 16 minutes after 10 Renata, good morning What is your question? Morning Eusebius and morning Dr Chris My question is to Dr Chris I've spoken to him from the beginning of last year I've got a damage uh, a nerve in my jaw through an implant which subsequently uh, the implant was taken out, but the pain persisted, and I've spoken to Dr. Chris last year, and he suggested there was some sort of a, a solution to it. And I went to Croatia last year twice and had two procedures with Professor Chudi. He's also a scientist. Now, what he did, he did the, something to do with the heating diode. He went into my jaw, and it, it didn't help. So he then eventually told me scientific solution for this problem for now is only a complete blockage 
for that side of my face that I don't have the pain anymore. Now, I would like to t- uh, um, ask Dr. Chris, wh- what does he think about it? <laughs> right. Dr. Chris? Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds very uncomfortable. I'm sorry to hear you're in that predicament. Mm. The problem is that you could end up here throwing the baby out with the bathwater because if you end up lesioning or cutting the nerve in order to stop the pain, you could end up then with more consequences of that, and there are a range of them, because sometimes when you denervate a patch of the body like that, then you can end up with pain chronically in that patch of body even more because the nervous system thinks, well, I haven't got any input from that bit of the body, so I'm going to turn up the uh, amount of of listening I'm doing to that patch of the body, and you start to get other spurious signals that can be painful in themselves. So that's a risk. And also, you'll get a numb patch. If you damage the nerve that supplies a patch of skin permanently, that patch of skin becomes numb, and there's no prospect of getting the sensation back, and that can become problematic because you can injure that bit of the body. It also can cause other trophic changes to the skin. So I would, I would embark down that route with... Ex- I'd go down that route with extreme caution, only if absolutely necessary. I would try, other, I'd try and exhaust all other avenues first, Certainly, I would certainly see someone who is a pain specialist because the people who know about pain syndromes and regional pain syndromes often know very good strategies for dealing with these things. And it's worth, before you take very serious steps to do irreversible things, try simpler things first and see if you can get them to help you. I suspect you've already done that, but uh, I would certainly do that before you go and do something permanent. Thanks for your question, Renata, and all the best to you. Teddy, good morning. Good morning, Insidious. Good morning, Naked Sanchez. How are you? I'm good, good thanks, Teddy. What's your question? Okay, man. I just wanted to continue a little bit, Insidious, on an issue that you raised earlier with a listener around <laughs> DNA and racism. Sneaking the open line into the next segment. What's the question, Teddy? Yes. Um, if one goes on the presupposition that you are what you think, right? Yes. And then one looks on an empirical sort of investigation around uh, genetic memory. Is there an argument to be made for um, racism that is learned over centuries finding its way into the DNA and the practice, say, for example, of white people in South Africa who feel unduly privileged all the time? Yeah, okay. Chris, let me give you some context. At the end of the open line, Alyssa and I had some deep disagreement around whether racism is usefully to be understood, at least in part, as being DNA delivered across centuries. I think there was a bit of misspeaking. He then said that he was talking about epigenetics and probably meant mimetically rather than genetically. And, of course, the philosophy in me was trying to make the point that At any event, even if it is true that there are social memes handed down intergenerationally, that one can reverse them because when all is said and done, it's learned behavior, and you may have an uphill battle to unlearn it, but it's still possible to do so. What scientifically do you have to say on that issue linked to Teddy's question? I think you've hit the nail on the head that this is learned behavior. And it's it's a behaviour that we pass on from one generation to another by the milieu at the time. The environment we grow up in is the one that we adopt behaviourally because humans are a social species. We get on and we're successful as a large group. And the way we do that is we have evolved to have a very receptive brain that says, OK, you, you tell me how to behave and I'll copy you. So we copy our seniors, we copy each other, and we do that to fit in. So we all kind of sing the same song. And this means that if a group of people are born into an environment where everyone gets on, then 
they will get on regardless of where someone comes from, what, what colour they are and so on. On the other hand, if people are born into an environment where one group are set against the other, for no reason other than that's what everyone else around them is doing, these people adopt that behaviour to fit in with their particular group. And that's what we've got to disabuse people of that notion. Genetically, it's a much harder argument to make because the thing is, humans are very intelligent for the most part. There are exceptions. We're all aware of a few of them. But for the most part, humans are very intelligent and intelligence trumps is that the right word to use? Perhaps <laughs> it's a bad choice. In, in, intelligence surmounts a lot of these things. And so actually, there probably is an element of genetics at play here in the sense that your genes make you receptive to messages. They make you sociable. They make you who you are by giving you a blank canvas to work with. But superimposed on that is your own intelligence, your upbringing, your education. Now, if you're a wild animal, on the other hand, innate behaviours are far more important to you. A, a bird that's born knows how to sing, for example. It knows how to lay an egg and build a nest. It didn't have to see its parents do that in order to know those things. So there are behavioural elements that are genetic, and, and people have done experiments. There's a wonderful experiment in Russia where they have bred foxes over many, many generations and selected ones that are friendly and ones that are unfriendly. And you can, you can breed animals that are very hostile and very, very fearful of strangers, and you can breed animals that are very friendly and very receptive of strangers, and there's no difference in the rearing apart from the, the genetic selection of animals that show those traits, and you breed more of them over generations. So there is an element of genetics in terms of how we behave in terms of giving us the canvas we have to work with, but most of this behaviour and the way we interact with each other is because of how we see our parents interact with each other and how we see our parents interact with their friends and how we interact with our friends and how we see our friends interacting with their friends and their enemies. And so that that's what we have to make sure that people get the right worldview from the get-go because then this won't become an entrenched behaviour because, it, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks and once people have got ideas in their head, it's much harder to disabuse them of those notions. Hmm. Here's a lovely question from the SMS line. Question from Rick. How does a master key work? Ah, well, the way that locks uh, are built is that if you imagine you, you've got... If we, if we were to look at a lock from the side and the key is going to go in, say you've got the key in your left hand and you're looking at a cut across section of the lock and the key going in from the left towards the right, the, the key has got all those ridges and furrows on it. As the key goes into the lock it hits a series of these levers which are dangling down into the lock space. The bits of the key that stick up push various of those levers up in the air and other ones are allowed to drop down. Those levers further up are sticking in the way of, the, of a system in the lock that wants to turn. So as you turn the key, then it opens the lock by rotating the drum of the lock. Now, if some of those levers are still in the way, getting in the way of that drum turning round, it can't turn. The key pushes the right ones up out of the way and allows other ones to drop out of the way. A master key knows, in inverted commas, where those levers have to be optimally in the lock and in some cases also engages a certain other set of systems to push things in the right place so that the thing can turn round. And this means it's possible, by having a different combination of these levers dangling down, to have keys that work only on some doors, but master keys that, that know how to engage all of them the right way so that you can open all the doors. And, and that's basically one simple way to make a master key. Ruan, good morning. Thanks so much for calling in. Morning, guys. How are you? We're very well, thank you, sir. What's your science question? 
I know when you breathe in oxygen that there's a burning process happening in the body, which um, ultimately, I presume, has to do with aging as well. So I want to understand if you, if you do, for instance, um, yoga, breathing exercise, you're taking up a lot more oxygen. Is your body burning out quicker? Like, are you dying faster, if that makes any sense? And my second question is... Um, okay, let's just keep it to the... Let's, one, one question per person, because, uh, you know, Chris is very popular. Chris, <laughs> did you get that first question? Yeah, and it's a good question, which is, it's, it's paradoxical, isn't it, that the one thing we depend upon for our survival more than all other, which is oxygen, actually is also very poisonous. And when you have a metabolism, our body is, is burning a fuel in the presence of oxygen. It's producing reactive forms of oxygen called free radicals and other chemicals with oxygen in them, which can damage our tissues. And part of the ageing process is that over the course of time, we damage our tissues. So you can't do without oxygen, but you can't. But 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 equally, um, it, it is a poison, and we have various mechanisms in our body to absorb some of those toxic species and defend us against them and slow down their aging effects. And this is where a good healthy diet comes in. Antioxidant molecules in fruits and vegetables, for example, and a bit in chocolate and some red wine. Not too much, though. Those sorts of things are very good at defending you because they get in the way of these reactive chemicals and they take the damage rather than your body taking the damage. But the question asked, well, if I do yoga or something and I breathe more oxygen, is this going to accelerate the ageing process? Well, no. And the reason is that when you take exercise, although you do temporarily apply stress to your body, this provokes tissues to put themselves into a state of better able, better being able to defend themselves. It makes tissues make more antioxidant molecules. It makes them release other repair factors and repair hormones and liberate energy for repair, which keeps your body in a better state of repair. And it's anti-inflammatory compared to when you don't take exercise. So although you do put more stress on the body in the short term during exercise, there's a longer term benefit, which actually offsets and more than offsets the short term stress mark good morning thanks for holding on yeah good morning i'm just interested to know um why i sneeze if i look into the sun or other bright light sources hi mark oh, wow mm. is that is yeah, that common Chris? It, it is quite common in fact mark you're one of about 20 percent of the population who are victims of what's called the photic sneeze reflex i'm one of them and it's quite useful actually because if you have that horrible situation where you want to sneeze and you can't quite get it over the line and you want to sneeze but you can't make it happen. Stare at a bright light or go into a room, turn all the lights on, go out of a dark room into the sunshine, whoa, you'll have a massive sneezing fit and you feel terrific. But we don't know exactly why it happens, but there does appear to be a genetic element to this because it runs in families. If you do it, it's, more, it's much more likely your children are going to do it, it's more likely your parents do it. And as I say, about one in five people has this. The original theory was that this occurs because when you look at bright lights, it makes your eyes water a bit. The watering makes your nose run a bit because the tears drain into your nose and that tickles your nose and it makes you sneeze. People, including the American military, have done experiments on this because if you're flying a jet plane at 1,000 miles an hour, you don't want to go into a sneezing fit when you fly towards the sun. So they wanted to understand why this happens. They found that the latency, the time between seeing the bright light and the sneeze coming on, is far too quick for it to be tears trickling down your nose. The alternative explanation, which we're currently comfortable with, is that when light shines into the eye, 
the same circuits that are involved in making your pupil change size, because when we look at a bright light source, the pupil gets smaller to limit how much light goes into the eye, that circuitry, some of it spills over in the brainstem into adjacent circuits which are involved in sneeze reflexes. And in people who have that miswiring, if if you can call it miswiring, it's, it's an adaptation of normal, in those people, when they look at a bright light, that activity therefore facilitates or increases the activity temporarily in the sneezing circuits in the back of your brainstem, and that then moves you closer to the threshold for having a sneeze. And as I say, about one person in five has this, and it can at times be incredibly useful. We had so many cool questions and answers today. I think that was my favourite. <laughs> well, you can go the, and do the, the experiment now. Qu- you can go outside. After you well, finish, you can I walk was, out onto, onto, into, so onto Gwen questions. Lane and you can go and look at the sun and see if it triggers a sneeze. <laughs> I'd love to see you attempt to reproduce that answer while looking at the sun. <laughs> there is a newspaper you, called The Sun, you know, and, 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 that, and that would not be difficult. <laughs> we'll do it again next week. Thanks All for right. coming on. Thank you. Bye-bye.